Welcome back to Mennonite HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. Today, we have another special episode related to the novel coronavirus, known as COVID-19. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm interviewing Reverend Joe Hatva. Joe's ordained in the Mennonite Church and received his PhD in theology and ethics from Fordham University. He has worked on hospital ethics committees in both Indiana and Pennsylvania, and previously taught ethics at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana. He currently co-directs the ethics program at the Indiana University School of Medicine, South Bend. Joe, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for the invitation, and even though it's rather sobering, um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. As I was thinking about some of the ethical issues related to this COVID-19 pandemic, Certainly one that we see hitting the news headlines is about fair allocation of resources, meaning who gets the limited medical equipment and supplies and people power that we currently have available. One of our primary concerns as healthcare providers is about having enough ICU beds and ventilators to treat those who are critically affected by the coronavirus. If there aren't enough resources, Joe, how do these resources get allocated? So I think we probably should back up just a second and admit that even our way of framing that question ends up hiding certain social inequities, right? So poorer resource communities and healthcare systems are already going to be starting out behind. You know, there are a lot of safety net providers who already didn't have adequate resources to provide sort of optimal care for people. And they're going to be faced with sort of these untenable choices before the rest of us are. And I I just think that we sort of need to acknowledge that even when we're wrestling in our own setting with how hard these choices are, we need to recognize that there's something sort of deeply broken about our system that creates these inequities before we even, quite apart from facing the pandemic or other sorts of challenging situations. A lot of the the literature talks about a duty to plan, and I I want to acknowledge that that at least from my perspective, we see a lot of real effort going into planning now in a lot of places. You know, obviously New York is already overrun, so sort of planning for them is kind of hard because they can't get out in front of it. But I've been seeing a lot of almost Herculean efforts to free up as many beds as possible, get as many additional ventilators as possible, you know, creative efforts at, at figuring out how to vent more than one patient on a single ventilator, creating additional uh, care locations. I have a very dear friend who's a general in the Ohio National Guard. In Ohio, he's going to be in charge of creating these tents adjacent to hospitals that are going to be, have negative pressure that there will be COVID tents, right? So to create a lot of additional bed spaces. I want to acknowledge that people are sort of honoring that duty to plan and they're, they're being very creative and I think putting in a kind of Herculean effort. I'm not convinced that's happening everywhere in the States, but in many places it's happening. Let's say that my hospital is already at 90% capacity and that's also true of the other hospitals in my region. Then people are sort of pouring in sick right? They're just streaming in 
And we can see that we're going to reach capacity and go way beyond capacity real soon. And there's no way to send them to another hospital or something like that. In that kind of setting, our normal ways of thinking about triage get sort of turned on their head. So normally when we do triage, we take the sickest or most injured persons first, and we plow all of our energy and resources into them. And in this kind of setting, we actually admit that we can't save everybody. Everybody's not going to get the care they deserve. So how do we do the most good? And it's basically, how do we save the most people and the most total years of life? It's a very uncomfortable way for a lot of healthcare providers to think about because healthcare providers are used to thinking about the individual in front of them and what that individual needs. And right now, the first step of this, the triage step, doesn't do that. It thinks about societally, how do we save the most people and buy the most years of life? Uh, I work with med students and that's not how we train them on a regular basis. If that's with that upside down triage, then your basic idea is to say, we're gonna divide people coming to us in three groups. There's the group that's unlikely to survive or benefit even if we intervene. There's a the group who is likely to survive even if we don't provide care. And there's the group that's likely to survive, but only with intervention. We're only gonna focus on that third group. We're only gonna put our energy into the people that we think will survive, but only if they get our resources. So you can see already that that's pretty uncomfortable in terms of we're, we're telling a lot of people, we don't have something for you. And then with that third group, that is the group that's only gonna survive if we intervene, then we start creating tiers even within that, recognizing that even within that third category, there's a really good chance you can't help everyone who might survive with help. So then you start trying to differentiate, okay, even within this, this limited spectrum, who are we going to provide resources for on what basis and for how long? It's somewhat troubling, even the first set of uh, divisions, unlikely to survive even with intervention, likely even without to survive even without care, and likely to survive only with care. Because that first category, unlikely to survive even with intervention, we can also already see, think of some of our implicit biases, and I know you and I have spoken about this before, kind of set in about who we think as care providers are going to be unlikely to survive. The And immediately I go to people who might be older population and patients who already have comorbidities, uh, meaning other illnesses, diabetes or heart problems. And so who knows what other biases we're using to make these categories. And, and that's what sometimes makes it a little bit troubling for us as care providers. Yeah. So one of my big worries in this is actually just the distress for healthcare workers. And it's, it's going to be physicians and nurses and frankly, even the people cleaning the floor, because they're all going to know what's going on, right? There are going to be lots of people that we would normally be taking very good care of. And now, if we're able to provide them sort of some kind of palliative or supportive service, we will be doing, doing well. 
and you know an awful lot of people we're gonna we're gonna tell them to go home and shelter in place and you know frankly cross their fingers how does this kind of triaging in this pandemic situation different from a wartime triage situation you know there's an awful lot of similarity and i'm not terribly well versed on battlefront triage usually there you're also trying to figure out who you can survive who's going to survive i i don't know right now like in recent conflict situations how those things would have been handled in part because i think our resources are probably are probably good enough to cover um i i do know that if you would have looked at much earlier times um one of the things we would have been considering is not just survival and years of life, but we would have actually been thinking about who are we gonna get healthy enough to put back into battle. And at least for us, that's not the consideration. In fact, we have a, uh, we're, we're really quite concerned that we don't make those kinds of social contribution judgments on people. In warfare, you could easily see how you're gonna prioritize the general over the lieutenant, how you might prioritize those who are gonna go back in the battle over those who wouldn't if your resources are really that limited. And we're utterly committed not to be making judgments of social contribution. Everywhere I know, it's you're excluded from considering whether or not somebody is wealthy, well, frankly, even healthcare providers, right? So we can't prioritize the doctor over, over saying, well, you know, we need more doctors, so we gotta save the doctors. We're trying desperately hard not to make social contribution judgments. That's kind of interesting because you would, going back to your wartime analogy, you would think you would want the physicians and nurses and the other health and respiratory therapists, all these healthcare providers to be available to return to work to take care of the patients. Part of the presumption here is that we're not facing the collapse of human civilization. I don't know what this would look like if we said the choices we make here probably determine whether or not human civilization continues or not. We're trying to figure out how to make the most morally justified choices that are not biased or discriminatory in a situation of limited resources, but also one that we can, we anticipate coming out the other side. So what kind of guidelines are hospitals using to make their own guidelines about triage? We don't have sort of national level guidelines for this. And I don't even know that all states have guidelines. And the states that do have guidelines, their legal status is not clear to me. We are certainly not following our state guidelines all the way down the, the line. And there doesn't seem to be any reason we have to. I don't know about other places. There might be state guidelines in some places where hospital systems are, are sort of expected and required to toe the line on every single point. What we have done, which I think is quite common, what we've done in our setting is set up something that you could, you could envision as a series of tiers or as a flow chart. This is part of our way of getting at how, you know, we're trying to separate survival from not surviving from those who only survive with help. One of the first things we do is we have exclusionary criteria. And basically we're trying to get at the people who are unlikely to benefit 
much from our intervention, even if we were successful. So for instance, people who are at uh, end stage renal failure, it's not expected that they would do well with intervention, but even if they did, it's not expected that they would live long afterward. Same thing with metastatic cancer. You know, somebody who comes to us with already having a diagnosis of six months to live or less, that's going to be an exclusionary uh, criteria for an ICU bed, a respirator, and some things like that. Hopefully, we can still get people comfort care, but it is going to be an exclusionary criteria. And most of the policies I've looked at have very similar sorts of criteria. They may have one or point, two points different, but they're trying to say which one of these things makes it unlikely that if we intervene, you're going to get a lot of benefit out of this. Another one, for instance, is unwitnessed heart attacks. If people have, had a, have been resuscitated, but we have no idea how long it was, right? So that they may have been oxygen deprived for a long period of time. In a lot of protocols, that's an exclusionary criteria where it would absolutely not be under normal triage. So that would be one. Then secondly, there's this thing called SOFA, which is a sequential organ failure assessment. And we're using the M-SOFA, which just means modified. And all it is, is it's a series of lab and clinical data to sort of real quickly evaluate a variety of organ systems. And the goal here is to try and take some measure of likely mortality. And for us and for every protocol I've seen this using SOFA or modified SOFA, it's basically, if you have a score higher than 11, you know, there's numeric scores associated with these different tests, lab tests and assessments. If you have a score higher than 11, we're gonna count that as exclusionary. So you might get past the first step, but then not get past the second one. And so again, this is kind of part of your flow chart as right. your physician right. or triage team decides on if the resources become limited. So not in use probably right now for your particular hospital, but if the resources become limited in your hospital, then they would use this flow sheet to help them triage in that moment of scarce resources. Right. No, we are absolutely not in that setting now. And part of our goal is not to get there, right? And so again, our, that, our that goes goal, back to your duty to plan. Right, right. So part of planning is planning this and to try and be as transparent with the community as possible and to try and get as much as possible on the same page with the other regional hospitals so that we all have relatively similar criteria, relatively similar procedure for getting there, right? So that both now and in the future, we can be as open as possible and say, this is why our hand was forced and this is the decisions we made ahead of time and this is why. Yeah, so the flow chart goes exclusion based on things like uh, metastatic cancer, then this modified SOFA lab scores, clinical diagnostic stuff. And then in our setting, what we're using next is a combination of age and comorbidities. So basically the idea is that you still, even, even with those two first exclusions, you could easily end up with more people than you have beds or respirators. And so then how are you going to choose between them? And basically we're saying we're going to prioritize significant age differences. So a few years isn't going to matter very much, but you know, if you're talking about a 25 year old and a 45 year old, um, we are going to give the nod to the 25 year old, all other things being equal. We're also looking 
sort of at the same time at comorbidities so that there are going to be some comorbidities, some other sorts of, you know, people might have sort of long-term uncontrolled hypertension, right? And that might be a notch that we want to pay attention to that if we're having to weigh people because these, these comorbidities might very well influence survival, even if they're not captured in those first two things we did. For us, it's exclusion criteria, the modified SOFA, age and comorbidities. And to be entirely honest, with our policy, there's a big hope then that we don't need additional criteria. That by the time you, you consider age and you consider how many other illnesses people have, that we have enough to go by. It is not in our policy, but I've recommended, I've recommended that if we get to, we've gone through all that and we're still faced with more people that need resources than we have resources and they all seem equal. They're all equally in need. They have all equal likelihood of survival. They're all relatively the same age. I think we need to draw numbers from a hat because at that point we need to use randomness because I'm very much afraid that other sorts of biases will then just creep in and that, you know, our own inclinations to say, well, you're disabled. So that life isn't as worth living as somebody else's life that if we want to try and, and prevent those sorts of biases from creeping in, that we should admit that at that point, we don't know how to make decisions and, and allow sort of randomness to do what it does. And we are hoping like crazy, we don't get there. And you're hoping, or you would hope to use the random drawing of a number or whatever, instead of a first come first served kind of idea. I'm actually pretty, pretty radically opposed to first come first serve at any point in the process. Uh, my concern is actually sort of threefold at one level. If you use that sort of, especially earlier in the triage protocol. So if we had followed the state protocol after the exclusionary thing in the SOFA score, then it would have just had us do first come first serve. And the results of that are deeply counterintuitive sort of morally, because that means then that the 65 year old who shows up 20 minutes before the 25 year old still gets preference because they showed up 20, 20 minutes sooner. For the vast majority of people, we have a sense that there's sort of a normal number of innings to life. And the reason we see younger death as tragic has something to do with we expect or we hope for people to get a certain number of years out of life. And we don't see a 70-year-old dying as nearly as tragic as we see the 20-year-old dying. And I think there's a moral intuition there that we need to pay attention to. One problem with the first come, first serve is that it simply, and I understand they're trying to avoid ageism, but it ends up undermining really a very normal moral intuition that we want to try and help people get close to something that resembles a normal lifespan. Secondly, and this I've talked to you about before that I really worry about is that first come first serve in many situations is going to give privilege to people of higher socioeconomic status. The more well off you are, the easier it's going to be for you to get to the healthcare center faster. People around here have to either figure out somebody to take them or use public transportation are going to be massively disadvantaged 
over people who have been working from home and have a car and a driver and right so you don't want to privilege people of means by giving saying because you got here 40 minutes sooner you get the care my other concern about this is that i think that if the public gets the sense of first come first serve however that gets communicated it has a real chance of creating a run on hospitals and Part of what we want is we want people to stay at home as long as, as, as is appropriate. So we don't want to encourage them to come to the hospital too soon because that's part of what's gonna cause the sort of crash on our resources. So if you start talking about, well, the first person who comes is gonna be the one who gets the help, you're encouraging people to come before they really need to be there because they're gonna be afraid that they're not gonna get care if they don't. We have definitely talked about the moral distress that this is likely going to cause to care providers. You And you've also talked to me a little bit about a triage committee. Can you tell me more about that concept and how you're implementing it? We talked a bit here about what triage might look like in broad terms, but almost all the recommendations are suggesting that the people doing the triage are separate from the people who are doing the actual bedside care it's not hard to figure out why that would be, right? So you're, if you're trying to protect the, the people once they're in care and you're trying to protect their caregivers from what is already an overly stressful, overly emotional situation, you don't want to make those caregivers also the ones doing the triage sorts of decisions, which are so burdensome. So most decisions try and separate those out and say that there, there needs to be somebody making triage decisions that is not the person then doing most of the care. What I've argued for and what our, our system has adopted is a team approach. We're using three people. I don't know that it has to be three. The idea here is to spread the burden because it's going to be terribly painful to make decisions to tell people that we can't help them and that you're, you're sort of saying, we made this decision. It wasn't just me making that decision. So you're spreading the sort of moral, emotional burden of that. I think you're also likely to catch each other's biases. If I'm concerned about sort of implicit biases creeping in, I don't necessarily know that I'm biased against the disabled. I don't necessarily know that I'm biased against people of color. I don't necessarily know that I'm biased against people who work with their hands, right? But I could be. I could value their lives ever so slightly less than somebody else's. And the thing is that if you're working in a team making these decisions, then you have to justify the recommendation you're making to other people. And so we're, we're more likely to catch each other's sort of underlying implicit biases that could come out here without us ever realizing it. For me, those, two are, those are the two biggest things. I also just think, again, in terms of public perception, both during and after a pandemic, the, the public perception, if you have sort of a triage czar making all of these decisions, you can just point to one person and say, look at the terrible choices that person was making. But if you've got a team following an already approved institutional policy, then people are still going to be unhappy, but they can't sort of blame one person for what were already sort of unbearable choices. This could potentially lead to some unbearable choices. And I've heard you said there are cases where there will be no good answer or there may be no good answer 
and when the best we can do is still not necessarily good. Can you talk a little bit more about that? In some areas of, of moral philosophy, we use the language of tragedy differently than we use in everyday speech. You know, you and I, when we would normally talk about something being tragic, what we just mean is it's very sad and we wish it was otherwise, right? But in, in philosophy, tragedy can mean a situation where every choice that you can make is in some important respect a morally bad choice. And there are philosophers that, that deny there is such a thing as, as tragedy in this sense. But my own take is that their positions reflect a desire to calm our conscience more than the reality of the situation. I think that there really are times when every choice that we can possibly make leaves real, important moral obligations unmet. And that we need to sort of sit with that fact, that we need to sort of own that there are unmet moral obligations and that it's, it's part of being finite, frail human beings in a broken world that sometimes the best we can do isn't very good. Even if you think about some of the criteria I've been laying out, if we save a 20-year-old who goes on to a long life, but we've denied care to a 45-year-old who maybe has comorbidities, but also has children who are still in school, and depending on that 45-year-old for, for love and care and financial support, and who are traumatized by the death of that 45-year-old, I think we should admit that we did what we knew how to do, but it wasn't very good. And that in some respect, we did something deeply wrong, that we had an obligation to that 45-year-old and his or her family and that we let them down. And my own sense of this is that at least Christians should be able to acknowledge this, that at least Christians should be able to say, sin isn't just the things I do wrong. Sin is a phenomenon that has infiltrated our institutions and even creation itself. And we should admit that our hands get really dirty, we can't keep them clean, and that we have to fall back on the graceful arms of God. And that even if others don't want to sort of face the sort of bleakness of some of these choices, we should. Something I've been pondering besides just the, the resources in terms of ICU beds and ventilators, because that's what we hear a lot about in the news. And then we do hear that there's a shortage of the personal protective equipment, the PPE. And so one of the things I've been thinking about as a care provider, when I look at my colleagues, is what is the care provider's moral obligation to provide care to these coronavirus patients if the care providers don't have the proper protective equipment? Um, yeah, so first, that's super hard. This is not easy. That's why we have you. Right, but it's hard, and I just got done saying I believe in tragedy. So I, I do believe that there are times where we like no matter what we do, we've done something wrong. I think we need to sort of admit that. I also think in this kind of question, you know, early in this conversation, I, I suggested that we need to acknowledge that the pre-existing social inequities have caused part of the problem we're facing. And that right now, this is another one of those, right? We've known for ages that we were going to face a pandemic at some point. 
we've had lots of time to create mechanisms to quickly uh, ramp up the creation of protective gear. We've had plenty of time to stockpile protective gear, but instead we've underfunded and cut funding to public health, and we've done painfully little to, I mean, if you look at the national stockpiles of uh, personal uh, protective equipment, I think it's shameful. So, you know, just, it doesn't help us in the moment, but I do think the moment reveals another way in which sort of our, the, the sort of sinfulness of the way we're, we, our society is structured, the way we prioritize certain things over other things. This is another one of those where there isn't any good reason for us to lack adequate PPE. So that's one. Secondly, when I think about this, I think about it at least at two levels. One is that many of our moral responsibilities are tied to our social roles. A parent has responsibilities to a child that other people don't necessarily have to that child. You know, a clergy person has certain social responsibilities by virtue of being a pastor or a priest. Lawyers have certain responsibilities by virtue of being a lawyer. People in the military have responsibilities by virtue of being in the military. It's their social role which helps define their moral obligations that might very well not apply to other people. And part of what happens when you become a physician or nurse or a physician's aide and some of these other things, right, is that you're accepting a role in society that does mean you're going to take on greater risk and sacrifice for that society. Now, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about, about how that happens. There are social contract notions. There are notions of what it means to be a professional. But I don't think there's much doubt that, that some of our moral obligations come from our social roles. And that by virtue of having been sort of entering into certain professions, you're accepting greater risks. You know, we, we assume that first responders are, are accepting greater risks. So I do think that however we think about what the limit of that risk is, that we have to at least admit that the nature of being a nurse or a doctor or a nurse practitioner or some of these other roles is that they've, you've accepted greater risk for the sake of the community. In terms of thinking theologically about this and within our own tradition, I can't ever get past the idea that we know that we are supposed to be willing to put ourselves at greater risk for the sake of others, and that there are things much worse than dying, that giving up on our convictions, turning our back on our faith, things like that are worse than dying. And I'm old enough to remember when every family, the only two things you could be sure that they had was a copy of the Bible and a copy of the Martyr's Mirror. And part of the point of the Martyr's Mirror is that you don't turn your back on your commitments and that many things are worse than death. And at least on my copy, in the picture I've seen many, many places, but on my copy of the Martyr's Mirror on the cover was Dirk Williams running back. Somebody had been trying to catch him. He ran across the ice and the person trying to catch him fell through the ice. And Dirk Williams goes back and rescues the person who's trying to to capture him, which then leads to Dirk Williams being executed. I think in our tradition, that's meant to be sort of paradigmatic, that we are supposed to be willing to take risks 
for the sake of others, even when we recognize that it might have pretty dire consequences for us. A lot of that's to frame things to say that we need to be willing to take risks for the sick and the dying, even if it means that we might become sick or die. I really appreciate you bringing it back to our theologic and our historical traditions and the martyr's mirror and the fact that we as physicians and nurses do have a moral obligation to care for our patients, even in these really scary times. Part of my thought process as a care provider, though, is even if I am willing to sacrifice myself, because this is an infectious agent, if I am to contract this virus because I'm not properly protecting myself, I then become a nidus of infection of others. And very clearly we're seeing in hospitals in the nation that provider to provider transmission is very concerning because it can knock out an entire staff and an entire specialty because the way providers work so closely together. So that becomes my ethical consideration as well. If I'm not properly protecting myself as a care provider, that I can pass this on, not just to myself and my family, but to others and then cause more widespread disease. Yeah, so I don't disagree in in some ways, right? So these are worries. And I don't know how this needs to play out in reality, in part because each situation is specific. So there's lots of specific, specific things going on. What other obligations do you have outside that hospital? You know, what obligations do you have to families, to neighbors, to church, to the rest of the healthcare system? That's going to vary by person and by healthcare system and by geographic location. What's the chance of keeping healthcare workers sort of in the building and giving them, right, so that that we sequester in place? So the care is taking place there, but we're also not leaving or at least not leaving the grounds, you know, that you create tents or something for the healthcare workers so that they're not leaving the grounds to take the likely contamination outside. And honestly, I think these are very real concerns. We don't know how many people remain asymptomatic but are contagious. The head of the CDC, it was either today or yesterday, said it could be as high as 25% of people never know they have the disease. That's a frightening possibility. Whatever that number is, we do know that people can be asymptomatic for up to two days while being contagious before they start showing symptoms. These are real worries. And I think that we need to think as creatively as possible. But sacrifice might mean, you know, I have a cot in the hospital and I don't leave the building. Uh, Sacrifice might mean that some people are only taking care of COVID patients. And they're not doing any of their other uh, sorts of responsibilities because to do, to have any other kinds of engagements with other staff puts that other staff at risk. You know, I do think we have to think as, as sort of creatively as possible. I do want us as much as possible to avoid situations where the sick and the dying are left alone. I think something about healthcare will have lost its soul if people are left to die in their rooms without anybody to even touch their hand or to say that, they, that they're present with them. And some of these things actually remind me about the fears. I absolutely agree that these are real questions, 
right? But I also am aware that some of the fear um, resembles the early days of AIDS. We didn't know how contagious this thing was. We didn't know how, how exactly it was spreading. And people were getting really afraid. And the majority of people, I think, made good and faithful decisions. The majority of healthcare people did. Not everybody did. I don't know where to put this in our conversation, but my own work is primarily about character formation, that I don't actually believe that there's a moral calculus that will get us through most situations. Most of the moral decisions we make in life, we haven't even realized we've made them. We've simply made them out of who we are in the instance, in the sort of all the particularities of our setting. And that people who are, you know, courageous and humble and generous and prudent, most of the time make decisions, even in urgent crisis situations, they make decisions that reflect being, you know, courageous and humble, generous and prudent. And people who aren't often make, make decisions that are pretty bad. And at some level, you know, I, I want us to plan, I want us to try and create protocols and all that. But at some level, this is going to come down to the quality of the people in the situations and what decisions they're making. And I think if they are people who are reasonably well-formed, then we trust that they made the best decisions that they knew how to make in a very bad situation. I was contemplating our duty as Anabaptists, and I also agree with, I think what you're telling me is that our duty is really to this vulnerable population which has left me considering how this social distancing and isolation guidelines, even though I, I do think it's the right thing to do, but how is it affecting our most vulnerable populations? I'm not even thinking about how vulnerable these populations are in terms of getting the coronavirus or becoming sick or ill, but how this social distancing and the isolation and not going to work and loss of income, how it's affecting these populations. I think of all the children who are not being educated. I think of children who are not receiving their school-provided lunches. I think of children who are at home who may be experiencing increased violence or abuse due to this very stressful situation. I'm thinking about businesses being shut down, maybe middle-class, working-class folks who are self-employed, small businesses, who are gonna be incredibly hard hit because they don't have an institutional financial reserve to pay their bills, and employees who might lose their jobs or employees who are, who are furloughed. So these, this population that doesn't have a lot of extra, who lives paycheck to paycheck, and how we are doing this to save lives, but we may in fact be causing more people to go into poverty. And that's, how do I think about that as an, as an Anabaptist? <laughs> yeah, man, you just give me all the softball questions. My initial reaction to that is that I suspect that that's a faulty narrative or a false dilemma, and at least in this way, in that if we don't flatten the curve, we're going to sink many more people into poverty, and we're going to worsen the poverty of the people who are already marginalized and disempowered and poor. I don't actually think there's much doubt about that, that, that if, we, if we don't do everything we can to get the disease under control, the social and economic consequences, especially for marginalized populations, 
are going to be incredibly devastating. So that I, I think that, that figuring out how to get it under control really does become primary. I'm frustrated that they're so vulnerable, which reflects pre-existing inequities. And I think it should spur us post-pandemic to be working a lot harder at those inequities because there was a, a piece in the Atlantic this week that actually that actually said the pandemic is showing Bernie Sanders was right all along. I don't actually care whether you like Bernie Sanders, but his sort of drumbeat about inequities mattering, that inequities of wealth and power matter, and that we have to pay attention to that, that the pandemic is really highlighting that. I think that's correct. Again, we have to sort of be be addressing those inequities so that it's, you know, the next time it's not like this. Part of the problem is that if if we let the disease run, even, you know, we don't maximize our effort to keep it down, those communities are going to be hit harder by the disease itself. They don't have protective gear. By and large, this is the population that depends most heavily on public transportation and doesn't have an option about that public transportation. So they're going into situations that are more likely to spread to them. The marginalized populations are almost always working with health that is compromised in some way. And we know that the people who are most at risk of dying from this thing are people who are otherwise compromised. I understand the worry about saying if the economy gets really bad, it's especially bad for the people at the bottom. I understand that worry. But I think the way it gets narrated to us sometimes in the media, it's creating a sense of a dilemma that isn't there. Because if we don't get the curve down, it's going to hurt the poor in the same way that it's going to hurt the elderly in, in terms of being completely disproportionate. I also think that when we see government actions that seem helpfully directed towards marginalized populations here, we should applaud those and then we should demand more. You can do political action from your desk. You write letters, you make phone calls, you send emails, you know, letting your legislatures know that you expect them to prioritize the welfare of the vulnerable. If they hear that often enough, they'll act, but they're only going to act when they feel like, like they have to. So I think we should be demanding sort of appropriate action on behalf of those who don't necessarily have a voice, you know, and then we could talk about, you know, other things which are probably too political for this podcast, but in terms of long-term wealth redistribution, wealth inequities matter in situations like this. They really do. And we have to be finding ways to address that. And then finally, I think that some of us need to be willing to risk our own financial security to assure the financial viability of our neighbors. And whether that means plowing money we don't feel like we have into programs that are providing meals for the kids who would be at school otherwise, because we have those at least around here. If it means that, you know, whether it's your church's deacons fund or it's some of the national campaigns to take money that maybe makes you feel a bit at risk. In fact, I suspect that's one of the criteria. If you don't feel at risk by your gift, it's probably not big enough. So that's right now, at least in my thinking, this is what we do. I think there are also going to be opportunities to 
support small businesses by, you know, buying gift cards that you don't tend to use for a while by, there's a lot of national organizations that are trying to provide funds for like service workers. And so, right. So a lot of the people who are going to be heard are the people who are cleaning your hotel room, but there are funds being set up for those folks. So put money into it. Oddly enough, I actually think that there are other things we can be doing here that maybe don't immediately address your question, but only sort of from the side. I noticed uh, a story that said that there's been a run on seeds, uh, garden seeds. That's probably a lot of people who finally figure they're going to get to that home raised garden project that they always meant to get to. But if you do that with intentionality, if you do it to say, I'm going to produce more, I don't have a lot of money that I can give, but I, I know how to grow things and I'm going to grow to produce more. And I'm going to figure out what the organizations are that can safely distribute this. That's something you can do. It's a little bit different of a demographic group, but a group I'm worried about are people who are already lonely and isolated. This pandemic is likely to make their situation much worse. Uh, Loneliness and isolation actually are determinants of health. They have real repercussions for people's longevity and well-being. Be creative about reaching out to people that you suspect are lonely and isolated, maybe even worse now because of the pandemic. And since I'm on a roll now, (laughs) two more things about that that really are not so much about addressing marginalized communities as addressing our entire communities. If we're really serious about being willing to take risks for our neighbors, we should all be having conversations about being DNRs. For many people who might listen to this, that doesn't make sense for them. Maybe they still have young children at home and they're otherwise healthy. But for a lot of us, there's no good reason to default to resuscitation. And you will relieve burden on your providers in the system if you come in the door saying, if this goes south, you're not resuscitating me. In my case, we've also... Just to, clarify, just to clarify, for those who are listening, a DNR means do not resuscitate, and that would be somebody whose heart stopped beating, and the care providers would restart the patient's heart and possibly put a breathing tube in the patient for ventilation. Yeah, thank you for that. Before this, one of my uh, consulting gigs was actually working with uh, church-affiliated retirement communities on how to talk about living well at the end of life and how to plan for dying. And one of the things that people need to know in general is that resuscitation isn't terribly effective in the best of circumstances. We get this false image from TV about what's involved. It's pretty brutal and it usually doesn't work. At least not work to the, in the sense of leaving the hospital and leaving the hospital intact. There are lots of community resources and online resources for having conversations about what do you want done. And I think as church communities, we do healthcare a service. We do our neighbors a service by reducing the load we put on healthcare. If we come in and say, I'm quite happy to get sort of normal care, but if this thing turns this direction, I want you to stop. That's true for resuscitation and Uh, In my own case, and we last evening were uh, listening to a couple who made a similar sort of decision about ventilation. If the system really is at at a point where they're deciding between individuals and who gets a respirator and who doesn't, I don't want one. 
I, under normal circumstances, a respirator under this kind of thing would probably be relatively short term. I could see maybe that being okay. But if a respirator means that my neighbor doesn't get one who might very well need it, that's more intervention than I think is called for at my stage of life. And I would just urge people to be making those decisions ahead of ever needing to go to the hospital and having them clear and talked out with their families. We can reduce the load we're presenting to the healthcare system if we're willing to say they're just things we're, we're entirely willing to forego if it makes it better for our communities. You've given us some great ideas how we can respond as a faith community and just going to reiterate some of them. You mentioned growing your garden with intentionality, thinking about where that other, that extra produce can go, thinking about the lonely and isolated persons in our community and reaching out to them to help take care of their mental health. You talked about having conversations, parents and children having conversations together about this do not resuscitate or DNR idea of whether or not you would want to have chest compressions or ventilation if your heart stopped and if you were most likely dying and to take risks politically and financially for the good of our community as we are called to do in our faith community and something that you didn't mention here but you and I had talked about previously was thinking about ways of maybe sewing masks contacting our local hospitals or doctor office doctor's offices uh, making masks that the that particular institution could find useful and another thing would be to give blood to not necessarily do a local blood drive but to sign up where you can go to uh, the american red cross they'll they'll help you if you go to their website you can find ways where you can sign up to give blood there these are great ideas thank you so much for bringing my faith right smack up to my profession and helping me think through my own situation, but also the situation that I'm seeing going on around me. I appreciate your time tonight, Joe. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I, um, I've appreciated this, and I've also appreciated to uh, get to know you a little bit. It's been really helpful. And thank you all for joining the Mental Health Cast tonight please go to our website at mentalhealth.org. We appreciate your contributions, new and returning financial contributions that help support this program and the work that Midnight Healthcare Fellowship does. I want to thank Paul Schlitz for the music and thank you to Eugene Stevanis for his editing production. Thank you so much.